Hey, there you are, Bill. Uh, welcome to the program, Mr. Bill Delaney. Bill, how are you today? I am quite well. Thanks Good. for having me. Good. Well, thank you so much for, for uh, being involved in the program. Kind of having some technical issues this morning, but uh, thank you for bearing with us. Um, I was looking over your book, and I was looking a little bit about you, and I am a Jacksonville guy just like you. You're from the Jacksonville area as well, correct? That's right, yeah. Born and raised. Fantastic. And, you know, I was looking at the back of your – I did pick up your book, and I was just blown away by it. I, I think so, – I told my dad I lived in Jacksonville most of my life, back and forth, and I was so stunned by some of the things that I learned in there, things that I thought I knew, but I wasn't 100% sure that I knew, and things I had no idea about. How did you get into writing the book like this? So um, the book was – my publisher, Reedy Press, is a small press out of St. Louis, and they do books – like this um, in various cities. Uh, historically, they had done bigger cities, and they wanted to kind of go to some more mid-sized ones. And what they do is they like to find a local author because they will have a better sense of stuff on the ground, and that's especially true when they're doing a book on you know, the secrets, you know, hidden secrets of a city. And so they reached out to me, and I jumped at the chance to do it because this is exactly the kind of thing that I love to research and read about and find out about. I would I would do it even if I wasn't writing a book. It's just how how where did you find all the information? I was blown away by a lot of the stuff here, stuff that I would never ever have even known to research. Uh, so kind of from a a lot of different angles. Some of it was stuff I had heard about or I had written about previously uh, in some of my other writings. A lot of it was stories that I'd been told by my friends and colleagues and uh, family members and that, you know, I then went and dug into. Some of it was just me and my wife getting in the car and going out and seeing what we could find uh, and trying to research things that we might have heard about or that we thought were pretty cool. Now, I don't know how you had the time to do this. I'm, I'm looking at the back of the book, and you're a co-owner of ModernCities.com, the editor of ModernCities.com, the JacksonMag.com, Edible Northeast Florida Magazine. How do you have time to write a book like this and do the research? You sound like such a busy man. Uh, yeah, that's just it. I'm, I'm, I, I, I keep very busy. Uh, you know, I have my day job on top of all of my publications and writing projects. Uh, the the book was a, was – I had never written a book before. It was my first one, so that was kind of a new challenge. You're, you're definitely not a sit-and-watch-TV-and-spend-the-day kind of guy, then. Uh, no, I, I would say probably. <laughs> not, you know, not, not that I don't like to do that from time to time. but. I got you. I got you. Fantastic. Well, I was amazed by a lot of the things. Now, some of the things I had heard about the Great Fire of 1901, tell me a little bit about what how you had researched some of that and how it connected with some of the, the pieces of Jackson history. So... But to back up a little bit, the, the way that I came up with the spots, you know, I, we had kind of a, a set number of 86 spots, and I wrote up a big list of all the things that I would like to include, and then I windowed it down. And in doing that, I tried to get kind of a representative view of the city and the area around it, to try to cover a lot of different areas, not concentrate too much in any one area. As some of them I, I figured were. Uh, the things that I really needed to include because they touch on a lot. The Great Fire of 1901 was a great example. There's a big statue downtown. It's a big sculpture that is a commemoration of the fire. But the fire itself was a huge moment in Jacksonville history, a huge tragedy. 
shaped the way that the city has grown over time. I mean, honestly, like it continues to. And I think that's where a lot of the Jacksonville history comes from. If you kind of look at your book and you and you link from that, you kind of link forward looking from, well, this is where the fire was. And this is all these other pieces that have spun from that, like the creation of La Villa, the creation of uh, the different places around the city. Tell me about the, the one thing that amazed me was tell me about the train buried yeah. underneath the building. How How did you find that out? So that was one of those things that kind of had spread as like a rumor or urban legend that most people, you know, just didn't, you know, kind of dismissed or, or, or didn't take very seriously. Uh, it, you know, it kind of been spreading for a long time. I had read about it a number of years ago in, you know, on, on a local website, but then we had an eyewitness approach my partner, Mike Field, uh, from ModernCities.com and now the Jackson Mag, and he said, like, I actually saw this, and you know, like, I can confirm that it happened. And so then, when you have an eyewitness, like, then you start to take it seriously. But the story behind that is that uh, in the 70s, when they were building what's now the Wells Fargo Center, right, uh, they hired contractors to do the foundation. And as they were digging, they got down to the level that it smelled like burnt wood and they figured that that was the the stratum of the great fire that was the refuse from the great fire and as they dug into that they the shovels hit metal and they found that there was a train and the idea is there there was in fact a a train track that went that way a, a railroad went that way on uh a bay street i believe and the idea is that probably during the fire uh, it got derailed and it got just stuck in the, the mud of all the, the fire and the roiling water that it was churning up. Right. And it was just left there to be found 70 something years later. That's crazy. Yeah. And the, the, the even crazier part is that the contractors decided that it was going to cause a media furor if they revealed that what they had found. So they just kind of covered it back up and continued working around it. So it's now buried in the foundation of one of Jacksonville's signature skyscrapers. That's crazy. That, that, that fact just blew me away. I, I could not believe there was a train buried underneath a building in downtown. That's really, really amazing. Um, so I'm a history guy myself. I was a history minor. I went to UNF just like you did. Uh, what, what did you think of your time at UNF? How did, how did you like the, the, the school? I absolutely loved it. Um, I felt like I'd really uh, found my place. I had been to some other universities, dropped out, spent some time working at my cousin's surfboard warehouse uh, back here in Jacksonville. Cool. Decided to give college another shot. Um, and I just found, like, it was really my place. Uh, it was, I loved the faculty. I loved the the class sizes. Um, just like the, 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 the feel that you could get. You know, felt like being in a much smaller college than it is. There's so much history in in the book, and history was my minor in school. And and, and I think you know, there's there's great amazing facts in the book, and and you know, the birth of you know the Blue Angels I thought was really cool. And and I worked at the the Jacksonville Zoo for a while, and all the animals at the Jacksonville Zoo, and I had known about some of the things. But you know, a lot of the history. Tell me about La Villa, and, and like I've been through that area down there. And I'm a big fan of, of, you know, all the all the music of, of, you know, Ray Charles and Louis Armstrong and Billie Holiday and Duke Ellington. H how did you find all that out? 
so a lot of that uh, is accounts from people that used to live there and historical works that are, you know, they're often about like a different topic. Like it'll be about the blues uh, and, and music in Jacksonville, as opposed to just being about La Villa. But when you put it all together, you can start to piece together, you know, a much broader story. And I thought that was really neat how much that that area has changed and yeah. that there was such, you know, reading it, there, there was such a history back there. And yet, you know, we've lost a lot of that. And, and is there have you is there any effort to kind of keep that? I know part of the Ritz Theater had gotten re, uh, redone. It's, do we know that there's any effort to kind of bring that area back or renew that area? Yeah, there are. Um, there's a couple of things happening right now that are pretty cool. Uh, and there's some new developments that are coming in to bring housing back there. You know, La Villa was mostly demolished in the early 90s, uh, and it stayed that way ever since. The idea was they were going to demolish it and replace it with all new stuff, and it would just be better than it had been. But it turned out that's a mistake a lot of cities made. Um, and the the promised regrowth just never happened, or right. it took 30 years to happen. So now there are some things moving forward. Probably the coolest one is the James Weldon Johnson home site. James Weldon Johnson was a big hero in Jacksonville. He was a educator. He was a principal of Florida's first high school for African Americans. He founded the first black-owned newspaper in Florida. Wow. He was the first black head of the NAACP. He was a U.S. consul to Nicaragua. Wow. Uh, he did so many things. He was also a, you know, a fantastic writer and songwriter. He was born right there in La Villa uh, on the corner. I forget which streets they are, but they've identified the home site. And the plan now is to turn that into a full-on park dedicated to the legacy of him and his brother, Who's also a songwriter, and that's going to include all kinds of things: a uh, seating area, uh, bringing in a, a house to kind of commemorate where the house would have been, uh, and a massive sculpture uh, that was created by Augusta Savage, another Jacksonville area artist, who was the, who created this and inspired by James Weldon Johnson. See, that's great. That's I, and I, I think. You know, the old saying, those who do not um, uh, understand history will be bared to repeat it. You know what I mean? So yeah, we have exactly. to learn from the past. We have to we can't repeat the, the tragedies of the past. And I think bringing those things to light and having those things is something that our, our generations, you know, I, I have kids um, and I'm sure a lot mm-hmm. of the other folks that are listening have kids as well. And, and so we can all learn from the mistakes that we've made or, or learn from the successes that we've had in the past. And I, and I think that's fantastic to be able to do that. Um, I was amazed that the history of the Clara White mission, how, how it used to not be what it is. How did you find out about that? So that was a combination of old newspaper reports and just kind of city records of what had been there. It was the main building was formerly a uh, movie theater and a performance venue. Uh, and then once it shut down and Clara White moved in, they've, transformed it into what it is today See, i thought that was really cool going going all the way back into what the 1900s right yeah yeah early early 20th century uh, so it had uh, connections to uh you know jacksonville's you know blues and ragtime jazz music 
and then Connections continuing today from being the headquarters of one of Jacksonville's oldest charity charitable organizations. And I know there's a lot of uh, pieces of Jacksonville history that are that are in your book that kind of go back to the beginnings, the first of A, the first of B. How about Edward Waters University? Tell me about that, how you came across that, because that goes way, way back. Yeah, it really does, and it has a pretty pretty incredible history in the city. Uh, Edward Waters, it's currently located out in northwest Jacksonville, kind of the, the Durkeyville and Newtown area. Uh, it was founded in the I think it's 1860s somewhere in, in there I, I think I have the date in the book right uh, in the reconstruction era when after the Civil War when there was an effort by the federal government to reconstruct the South and give a better position to the formerly enslaved and this was an institution that grew out of that kind of time period and effort and it grew over time it was located in downtown Jacksonville. It was originally dedicated mostly to, to training preachers, uh, but then it expanded its offerings to become a full-on college, and it's just continued to evolve and change over time. Now has this beautiful campus, you know, just kind of in the heart of an urban part of the city. Uh, they just last year were added uh, master's programs, so they now are Edward Waters University. That's awesome. And I know it goes back, you had put in your book that it was destroyed in the fire and it was actually rebuilt. Mm -hmm. uh, so the are there any of the original buildings that were remaining or were they completely destroyed and had to be totally rebuilt from the ground up? To my knowledge, there's nothing that dates to like that, that the pre-fire era. All the stuff that they have now in the location that they're in, it dates to after that. Not, not, not too long after that. So some of those buildings out there are over 100 years old. Wow. Now I know that February is Black History Month. In my last episode, uh, my last episode, I talked a little bit about that. About uh, one of my heroes, Hank Aaron. Mm -hmm. uh, his birthday is the same day as mine, February fifth. And you had talked about J.P. Small Park, and yeah. that uh, that goes back to Hank Aaron. That goes back to his time playing with the Jacksonville Red Crabs. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So yeah, out in not too far from where Edward Waters is, out in the Durkeyville neighborhood, Northwest Jacks, uh, is. Jacksonville's only remaining historic sports stadium. It's called J.P. Small Fields, formerly Durkee Field um, and Bars Field. But it's where baseball was played in Jacksonville from essentially the earliest period. So it's where our minor league teams played. It's where spring training was held when they used to have it here in Jacksonville. Uh, it also was had major history in African-American baseball. The Jacksonville Redcaps were a team in the, the Negro Major Leagues. They were the only one in all of Florida history. Wow. They also, the, the Negro Major Leagues are now considered full-on major leagues along, along with the National League and the American League. So that really gives it the status as Florida's first uh, professional major league team in any sport. Uh, but they played out there for a few years between 1938 and 1941. Um, they, yeah, the history of that is really cool, but the history doesn't end there. Later on, Jacksonville's minor league team, the Jacksonville Braves, played there. And in 1954, they had their first year where they integrated. They had a new owner, Sam Wolfson. The old baseball stadium was named after him, but... 
he just he wasn't gonna let you know kind of southern squeamishness come between him and a baseball championship so he just went ahead and integrated the team <coughs> one of the first in the south to do that and they lucked into one of their first three players who they signed african-american players was hank aaron wow and he immediately led them to the league uh the league title that year and then he was immediately called up to the braves yeah, that's that's fine. Having shared a birthday with him and, and having you know grown up and people are like you were born the same day as Hank Aaron, and I've heard his name my entire life, and and yeah. you know, I finally did some research on him, and, and just a fascinating man, and just I mean from instantly from the word go, he was so incredibly talented, worked so hard, outworked the people on the team, and and had such natural ability, and and he just really rose so quickly from you know unknown to minor leagues to the majors to being in baseball history. So just a fascinating man. Yeah, he sure did. He was he was an incredible person. Um, my kids also listen. Are you are you a dad? Do you have kids? Uh, I do not. No. You don't. Okay. So if anyone ever mentions the uh, Magic Treehouse, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with those books. Have you read those? I, I I do have nieces and nephews. Yeah, I am familiar with those. Okay. Okay. So uh, my kids love the Magic Treehouse. And uh, we've read several of the Magic Treehouse books, and there was one of the episodes that did talk about going back in time to meet Hank Aaron. Oh, yeah. And to meet him, kind of to go see him play, to go see him play in the championship. And it was really, really interesting to, to hear how they, um, the author had framed him and how, you know, he was, he was just a guy, just a guy playing baseball. And, and it was really amazing to see that. And then you later find out, you know, my kids are being exposed to history that was, you know, what I learned when I was growing up. And, and it was really, really fascinating. Um, yeah. So really a cool experience. Yeah, that's really awesome. Are, are you a, are you a food guy, Bill? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, one of one of the publications I own is a local food magazine, Edible Northeast Florida. Tell me about that. Tell me about Edible Northeast Florida. How how did that get started? What what's the idea behind that? So it started a number of years ago uh, as part of uh, the edible communities. It's a a group. They do these magazines in all different cities and and parts of the country. And so it was started by you know, a couple of partners here in town, and then. Uh, two years ago, they there was a change in ownership, and they needed some more investors, and so my wife and I jumped on as part of the investment team, you know, kind of keep the magazine, making sure that it it stayed afloat uh, during COVID, because uh, we had written for the magazine before, and we just loved doing that. We had a great time writing articles together, and so when we had a chance to be part of the leadership of of the magazine, we we seized on that. You know, we love food. You know, we like telling other people about about it. We love our area, so it was a great fit. You got to go to this place. You got to try this meal, and yeah. let me tell you how good it is. Mm-hmm. So, exactly. one of the things I found out in your book was about Holly's Barbecue, and and I have to admit, I'm a barbecue guy myself, mm-hmm. right? I have sampled some Four Rivers, some Sunnies, some Bonos. Doesn't matter where it is, I, I love barbecue. Tell me how you found that out, and the history of the curly fry. Tell me about that. Yeah, so Holly's is uh, one of, if not the oldest, uh, restaurants in Jacksonville. It's definitely the, it's almost certainly the oldest barbecue joint. It goes all the way back to 1938, and uh, it's just a little stand concrete block thing. It's a walk-up place. You walk up, you order your plate, and then, yeah, take it with you. There's not, like, tables or or a restaurant. That's amazing. 
but uh, it's been doing the same thing. They got incredible barbecue, um, but one of their claims to fame is they claim to be the place where the curly fry was invented. The current owner, Wendy Holly, who got the place from her dad, says that he invented the curly fry and even had uh, one of his relatives, uh, he designed a, a machine to cut them into spirals, to cut potatoes into spirals to make right. the fries easier. But uh, he was illiterate, and so he never was able to patent it. And so he never got the full credit for it. But they still, to this day, they make them in the same the same style. The barbecue is great. Um, you know, it's uh, it's definitely a, you know, uh, <laughs> definitely a Jacksonville landmark. And I I know that you know curly fries are, are a big fascination of mine, and I've always been amazed by them. That is, and and it's 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 hard the way that that turned out, right? You know, missing the patent and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I think they still. Ha, have you been there? Have you eaten? Is it is it still open? Oh yeah, yeah, it's still open. Okay, um, and I know you talked about the camel rider as well. Now, a, yeah. a friend of mine and I—I I don't know if you listened to the episodes before. My, my buddy Jordan, um, uh, we are going to go out to the uh, the Sheik and mm-hmm. and try that and do a live uh, a read and a live uh, food tasting. Tell me about how you talked about camel riders and and how that's a Jacksonville thing. So that's one um, a number of years ago when I was just kind of getting started on my writing career. I did an article on Jacksonville's large and vibrant uh, Arab community. We have one of the largest Arab communities uh, in the country, one of the largest, uh, especially Syrian and Lebanese communities in the country. But a big part of discussing the history and the impact that Arab folks have had on Jacksonville is is food. Um, A lot of uh, Arab families have connections to the food business dating all the way back to when the first immigrants came here in the 1890s. But the Camel Rider is a product of the, the Arab-owned delis. Uh, came around likely in the 60s. That's the earliest that we can find it. And it's really it's uh, just a, a pita with sandwich fixings in it, often an Italian dressing. You traditionally eat it with some tabbouleh and a cherry limeade, but the the thing is like the it's one of those things. It's really a simple meal. It's a meal for working folks on the go. Right. But the the cool thing is that Jacksonville is the only city that has a big concentration of places that do this. It's the kind of thing that you know you live in Jacksonville. There's camel rider places everywhere. Right. Right. You can get them in some other cities, but this is the only place that you can get it in dozens of places. Now, I know you also talked about the Salam Club and the Ramallah Club. I'm going on to that same vein as well about the Arab Americans. Tell me about how you found out about them and, and their role in Jacksonville. Yeah, so they were – they are um, social clubs for uh, uh, Arab Americans from of different backgrounds. The – Salam Club was kind of a merger of a couple of earlier clubs, and it is primarily Lebanese and Syrian membership. And it's a social club. They have events for the members that belong there. You can use it to host weddings. I've been to a wedding out there that was, uh, you know, a ton of fun. Uh, the Ramallah Club is similar. It's a similar concept, uh, but for Palestinians. 
Jacksonville has a lot of uh, Palestinian Americans, primarily from Ramallah, which right. is a historically Christian town uh, in in Palestine, and they you know, the the Ramallah Club is you know a similar kind of thing to the Salam Club. It's a social club for members. They have facilities that you can host events and you know and do meetings and things like that. It's a it's a fascinating look back and 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 seeing where the history of, of these folks have have come to Jacksonville and, and kind of formed their location and said this is where we are this is where we're going to establish our culture this is where we're going to establish our location and and this is where we're going to be. Um, I know you also talked about shrimping and garlic crabs and seafood. Are you a seafood guy, Bill? Very much. So. Very much. All right, all right. I, I my my family's a lot of seafood eaters themselves as well. Um, tell me, tell me a little about the history of seafood and, and garlic crabs and shrimping. How how did you feel across all that? So that was, you know, one of the the universals across all of human existence has been food. You know, sure. You need you need to have food. Absolutely. Uh, so you, you always know that when you're researching something, that even you know, even if they don't mention what foods they're eating, that you know, like they are eating something, right? Sure. But uh, Jacksonville is a very well-positioned place for great seafood. You've got the St. John's River as a big breeding ground for shrimp that go out into the Atlantic. And there's a very, very fertile shrimp fishery that's right off the coast from here, you know, and expands. It, it stretches up, up the coast and down the coast a, a good ways. Uh, we also are a great location because of our you know, our rivers and the marshes and everything were a great location for blue crabs. So both those things loom very large in Jacksonville's food culture. And you had talked about Zebos? Yeah, Zebos. Right, Zebos Crab Shack, right? Is that the birthplace of garlic crabs? How? Do, what's the garlic crab history in Jacksonville? No, the garlic crabs date all the way back to uh, plantation slavery. Uh, they are a product of the Gullah Geechee people. The Gullah Geechee are descendants of West Africans who were enslaved in the Low Country, which stretched from Wilmington, North Carolina, down through South Carolina and Georgia, down to about St. Augustine. Wow. And a lot of what we consider Southern food came from the Gullah Geechee people, and yeah, that's an example of it. Uh, what you can really characterize Gullah Geechee food by is its African cooking traditions, some influence from Europeans and Native Americans, and it focuses heavily on in ingredients that come from the local environment. So in like a seafood boil, for instance, it's all a bunch of things that you would get easily on a farmer plantation. You can get crabs uh, or shrimp. Uh, directly from the waterways, right. where they're abundant. You mix them up with things that you can grow, spices, corn, all those kind of things, and you make them into one big pot to create a wholesome meal for the whole family. And it's a lot of food. Yeah, it creates a lot of food. Garlic right. crabs is a variation of the standard low country boil or seafood boil, just with a different seasoning. It's a, a garlic butter seasoning. Uh, to go with the crabs, and it is delicious. So Zebos is 
uh, one of the locations. There's probably at least 50 locations in Jacksonville where you can get this. Um, I'm definitely going to drag my family out there. I mean, I have my family's a lot of uh, seafood eaters. I personally grew up eating shrimp and and lobster and and tuna and all that kind of stuff. So I, I definitely enjoy it as well. Um, I'm not a seafood eater anymore. I've just kind of grown out of it. Uh, like mm-hmm. I said, I'm more of a barbecue, uh, beef and, barbecue and, right, kind of guy, right? I, I kind of lean that way. Um, mm-hmm. one thing that I noticed about the book, and this kind of caught my attention, my, and my wife's attention as well, there's a lot of the, uh, unknown and the occult in the history of Jacksonville. Tell me a little bit about, yeah. uh, tell me a little bit about the Annie Lytle School and the, uh, the, uh, what is it, the, the, the Barden Booger and, and yeah, there's a Barden couple Booger. other things that are out there. Tell me about that. Yeah, so those were those were a lot of fun. Um, some of my favorite stories are just kind of like the the weird, uh, you know, ghosts and mysterious creatures and unexplained phenomenon. Um, you know, I look at it mostly from kind of a folklore perspective of how these stories start up and how they get spread and maintained over time. Right. Uh, but Jacksonville has no shortage of these. Uh, Annie Lytle School, which you mentioned. It's also known as public school four, but it's probably most famous as the devil's school. I mean, right there, there's your there's your yeah. occult of the day, the devil's school right here in Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah, that's right. Like anybody that's traveled down 95 through Jacksonville has passed it. Uh, it's uh, right where the I-95 and I-10 interchange is. Uh, it's this old, you know, kind of, uh, you know, imposing looking building. And it was closed for a long time, and uh, <coughs> it got graffiti tagged. So it had this, it had it had two factors that really made it a fertile place for ghost stories. One is that it's incredibly visible to everybody traveling on a super busy highway, and it's also very spooky looking. Yeah, I, I've looked into some of the windows as I've driven by. I used to work at the airport. I used to work at the zoo. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but. Um, as you drive by, like you can you can feel the strange, you know, the eyes looking at you from inside, or or the ghostly spirits inside there. Like it has a very creepy feel just driving by on the highway. I couldn't even imagine being inside that building. Yeah, you know, and it it uh, became a is a a thing called legend tripping, which is you know a fancy word for something that almost everybody has done, but it's the uh, idea of primarily young people testing their metal or just kind of working themselves up by going to uh, a scary location and showing their their bravery and so the stories get attached to places that are sometimes just totally mundane places in order to set the mood and, right you know in teenagers it was like a major rite of passage when I was growing up to go to Annie Little and look around and you know, see how spooky it was. Now, I have to say that, unfortunately, all that attention has taken a real toll on the building. Now they do a much better job of keeping people out and keeping it shored up. And that's good. You know, you don't you yeah. don't want something like that destroyed because people are trying to be crazy and go in there and, you know, burn yeah, it down exactly. and break bottles and, and that kind of thing. So I, I'm, I'm okay yeah, with that, too. Yeah. Tell, me, tell me about the St. John's River Monster. St. John's River Monster. That's my favorite one of the whole book right there. The legendary oh, river good. serpent that lives in the St. John. That's that just caught my attention from the word go. Yeah. So, um, 
you know, one of the, the lesser known uh, crazy things in Jacksonville is that the St. John's River is supposed to have its own version of the Loch Ness Monster. That's fantastic. Named uh, Johnny, uh, sometimes called Pinky, because he's said to be the color of boiled shrimp. For some reason, sometimes he's called Gorinkus. Wow. But uh, since at least the 50s, people have been spotting him everywhere from Kissimmee up to the river mouth. Um, And there's just kind of, there'll be like uh, spates of sightings. Like back in the 50s, there was a guy that offered a reward for anybody that caught it alive. So, of course, all of a sudden people are coming out and saying, oh, I saw the monster. And in the 70s in Jacksonville, there was, you know, a couple of, you know, uh, fishermen uh, that were out drinking and said that they saw it. And that's that spawned another set of sightings. Um, you know, the cool thing about it is, you know, the people who have researched it don't think that all the sightings are necessarily, you know, nonsense. They think that they are seeing things that, you know, maybe it's not a monster, maybe it's manatees or something else with a rational explanation. Now, I'll tell you, my wife is a nurse, and, and she worked at Baptist Downtown for a while, and she said that um, from some of those windows, you can see the dolphins in the water out in the St. John's out behind there. And it, do you think it's possible that's what people were seeing? Yeah, I think that's totally possible. That's one thing that I've read is, you know, dolphins are pretty common there. You get a couple of dolphins swimming in a row. You know, that could very easily look like a sea monster, especially when you're a couple of beers into your fishing. Yeah. You know, a couple of beers and looking for the occult. I mean, those uh, those kind of go hand in hand, don't they? They sure do, yeah. Um, tell me about the Barton. The other thing that got me was the Barton booger. That, that, I thought that was a great story as well. I thought that was fantastic. Tell me about that. Yeah, the Barton booger is northeast Florida's answer to Bigfoot. So we have Bigfoot and we have the Loch Ness Monster right here in the city of Jacksonville. That's correct. That's right. The Barden Booger, Barden is this little logging town of 400 people uh, out in Putnam County, not far from Palatka. And they, the woods all around there, um, they've gotten a reputation as being home to the Booger, which have you ever heard of you know, the Skunk Ape? Sure. Florida Bigfoot, it's. It's essentially a variation of, of that. Uh, but the story, uh, the local paper uh, gave it a, you know, this very memorable name, the Barden Booger, Booger being like a name for like a boogeyman. And when they started publishing about it, it caught fire. And like the wire press picked it up, international news picked it up, and then everybody wanted to come out and see if they could find the Booger. That's and great. The locals, the locals really leaned into it. The little, you know, Bud's Grocery, the little uh, jiffy store at the center of the town, you know, stock booger merchandise, and to this day they have a booger file. That is great. The press, yeah, it's a, a pretty entertaining story. There's even a person that dresses up as the booger uh, to do live appearances, and she'll be in parades down in Palatka or at like openings of businesses. <laughs> booger costume that she made. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. So I know, Jacksonville, and I'm not going to keep you much longer, but thank you so much for spending your time with me. I, yeah, I know you're a very, very busy man. I really appreciate it. Um, I do want to get the word out about your book. Again, it's called Secret Jacksonville, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. And I'm spending the morning with Mr. Bill Delaney. Please pick up his book. Uh, give him some love. Let him know exactly how you feel. 
Um, I know Jacksonville has a military town and always has been, and uh, we're the birthplace of a flight demonstration team. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's the, uh, the famous Blue Angels. Yeah, there you go. They're born right here in Jacksonville. So the impetus for that is during World War II, Jacksonville became a major, you know, not even just like base, a center of multiple different naval bases. And the biggest one is, of course, NAS Jacks out on the west side. That's a naval, uh, a naval air station. And shortly after the war ended and, you know, the Allies were victorious, uh, the Navy wanted to do something that would continue to build on morale and continue to maintain the public's interest in naval aviation and show off what Navy pilots could do. And they'd seen over in France, France had this world-renowned demonstration flight team uh, for their, I think it's actually their Air Force. Uh, they do trick stunts and they show off what the aircraft can do and what the pilots can do. And so we wanted to have our version of that. And they picked NAS Jacksonville because it was one of the largest uh, naval air stations. And we had a lot of uh, great pilots that either were here or were connected to it. And so they launched their own demonstration team. Uh, the pilots were all hand-selected. And uh, the name Blue Angels actually came a little bit later. You know, they painted the planes because you know, they didn't need them to be uh, painted like you were going to war. Right. They painted them to be visible, and they painted them in the Navy's traditional colors. And uh, the Blue Angels name you know, came a little bit later than that, but this all happened right at NAS Jacksonville. Blue Angels had their first trainings, their first flight, and then even in the 1950s, they moved out to Pensacola. NAS Pensacola is a you know, even even bigger naval air station. Right. They still maintain a big presence in Jacksonville. They're here uh, every year or so for air shows. And it's fantastic to see. And, and I've seen the, the Naval Air Show out at Jack's Beach several times. I've seen it actually on the base a couple times. I've been out there. Um, and the Blue Angels are just amazing. Now you've got the Blue Angels. You've got the Air Force Thunderbirds that are out there. Um, there's a lot of military uh, flight teams that are out there. And it's really, really amazing to see them go. Um, Bill, a couple more questions for you. What would you say is your favorite weird, wonderful, or obscure thing that you learned about Jacksville? Maybe something that we didn't talk about. Yeah, so I think... You know, one that I, I bring up a lot is uh, Bulls Bay Preserve, and the reason for that is uh, something that I, I didn't know that it had. It's a preserve out on the west side, but I didn't know that it had until about two years ago. It has an honest-to-God waterfall. Now, it's not a big waterfall. This is Florida, after all. Right, right. Four, four or five feet tall. That's pretty good for Florida. That's not bad. And it is right off, uh, it's off Old Plank Road. It's not too far from the highway. You can literally see downtown skyscrapers standing outside of the preserve. Uh, this thing has been in city property for over 20 years before they were able to make a small part of it into a functional park. It has a history going all the way back to the founder of the city. It was owned by Isaiah D. Hart in the past. So it had all this history. It's been there forever. It's been in city, city ownership forever. And I had never heard of this place, let alone that it had a waterfall. You know, it's more than that. Um, 
you know, my, my father, John Delaney, was mayor of Jacksonville from 1995 to 2003, and he is the mayor that preserved this land and set it aside to be preserved. Oh, that's he awesome. Remember, he didn't even remember that there was a waterfall there. Dad, you, you signed the bill that preserved yeah. it. I, I would think you would remember that. There you yeah, go. It's pretty memorable, you'd think. Uh, but it, it, it really proved to me how no matter how much you know about a place, there's always going to be something uh, – including even something epic that, that you don't know about. And I've seen the pictures of Bulls Bay Preserve, and it's it's just beautiful. It's just, and, and I think there's so much of the wilderness and the wild. Um, you know, that's a lot of what this podcast is about, is, is the unknown, the off the road, uh, the things. You know, we love Disney, we love SeaWorld, we love Universal, that kind of stuff. That's yeah. all great and fine and wonderful, but it's it's like your book. You know, the things that people don't know, the people I haven't been to, I haven't, I didn't know the history of, you know, the train underneath the building and, and the history of the Blue Angels and the history of our connection to our history and our food altogether. Um, and I think that's fantastic is that there's so much of the Jacksonville, especially Florida, um, but there's so much of the Jacksonville area that, that you know, you got to get out there. you got to go check it out on your own. you got to go and look and see what's out there because you're, you're going to be shocked and amazed um, by everything that's out there. Um, where do you see uh, where do you see Jacksonville going? Do you, do you see us moving, uh, keeping a lot of these places, uh, the the – the, the, the history that we have, uh, do you, was it really well, well cared of? I mean, how, what, what was your experience with that? I would say that things are definitely getting better. I'd say that you know, kind of the new younger generations have a much greater pride in the city and the things that make us what we are, the things that really say Jacksonville. Um, you know, in the past, we had this horrible tendency that – you know, we didn't really value the things that we had, so we didn't maintain them or even we demolished them. Right. And it was only later that we realized how significant they were and and could have been. Uh, nowadays, I think there's a much bigger push to come <coughs> there and get off the beaten path and see these things and appreciate them for what they mean to us. So I definitely think that we're moving in the right direction, and I attribute a lot of that to – you know, to, to younger people that don't have kind of the old Jacksonville mindset. This is just a place for people to come, you know, northerners to move here to retire. And when you were out doing your research, did you find there was a lot of, uh, you know, people had pride in these uh, different facts and legends and history? And, and was it something that they were proud to tell you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Every one of these uh Every source that I talked to was like very happy to have it shared. Yeah, they yeah, they thought a lot of it. They, they didn't necessarily think that it would be something that might be in a book because it's not something that you know is going to be in a lot of tourist guides a lot of the times. But they were very happy to talk about it and to have it have it shared and have it be out there. Now, now I did I have gotten some you know, comments. I mean, they're mostly humorous, but they're like, Hey, stop, stop sharing all our good secrets. They're crowded. <laughs> There's going to be too many people. They're going to come they're, yeah. they're, they're not going to leave me alone. They're going to be here yeah. all the time. Right. Yeah. This is supposed to be a local thing. You're not supposed to send people right. out here. Yeah. Uh, what, what was your favorite? I know we talked about that, but what was your favorite obscure, uh, like, uh, occult? I know we talked about the Barden Booger, the St. John's river monster. What was there one that, that you thought was, you know, that just jumped out at you? Yeah, there's one that I think had the, the biggest personal connection for me, and that's the Ghost Light Road that uh, formerly from 
probably the 1960s to about 2001, if you traveled on that road at night, it was a dirt road in northern St. Johns County uh, off of uh, 13, uh, Greenbrier Road. Uh, when you traveled that at night, you would almost be guaranteed to see the specter of a single headlight that would appear to come towards your car before suddenly vanishing. And that is one that, is, you know, I knew that I needed to include it because when I was a teenager, I went out there and I saw that thing multiple times with all different groups of people, at least a few times with no intoxicants involved. So it, was, <laughs> it was absolutely a real phenomenon. Um, you know, so it has this ghost story connected to it. That it's a headless motorcycle rider who died in an accident, and now he warns people from, you know, being so careless or, or you know, patrolling the road looking for his lost head. Wow. Creepy, creepy, creepy. That is that. I, I have to admit, I've been out there. I, I graduated from Wolfson High School, uh-huh. and uh, I was in theater, and there was a bunch of us after the senior play said, look, let's go out. Let's go for a ride. And we wound up down on Ghost Light Road, and uh, it was as creepy as listed. Uh, it was yeah. definitely something that we all freaked out. I don't think I slept for about a week after it, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we saw the light as well. So um, fantastic. Bill, any advice for us? Any advice for the people of Jacksonville on the way out before we go? Yeah, I'd say uh, my number one advice is to see what you can find off the beaten path. That's where most of our coolest stuff is. Well, thank you so much. I know you're a very, very busy man. Definitely check out Bill Delaney's book. And, again, it's called Secret Jacksonville, A Guide to the Weird, Wonderful, and Obscure. Like he said, it's on Reedy Press. Also the co-owner and editor of ModernCities.com, TheJacksonMag.com, and Edible Northeast Florida Magazine. And he is a Jacksonville guy just like I am. Mr. Bill Delaney, thank you so much for your time. We certainly appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thank you, my friend. Absolutely. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next time on the Florida Fun Podcast, your destination for Florida fun.